showers in the north and east of England and Scotland, possibly snow on high ground. Tomorrow's outlook is for rain spreading from the west. The current Caroline temperature check is... 13th of March, 1966. My dearest C. I must raise a complaint with you, C. You know how I feel about you, and how you make me feel about myself, how my body responds to your body, and the very sight of you gives me palpitations. So, knowing this, my darling C, why would you choose to sit in the pew in front of me today during the Reverend Morgan's sermon? The back of your head was so close I could smell you, C. Your shampoo and your musk mixing in my nostrils, I could have breathed you into me. My eyes were closed as if with prayer, but all I could sense was you, you, you. Behind my lids shut tight, all I saw, like a branding on my mind, was the back of your head, not twelve hours before, as close as it was then, with my hands on the curve of your broad shoulders as we loved one another. Were you deliberately tormenting me, see? You understand how I was distracted, then, and was unable to hear what Reverend Morgan was saying of Lot and his wife and the consequences of our disobedience. I'm sorry, Lord. I was too busy disobeying you. See, write me soon. Mother is killing me with her cold nothingness around the house. It seems she only shows emotion to the pieces of paper she reads in bed at night, wetting them with her tears. I'm curious. I want to know what makes her feel that way. I need to know that something can make her feel. How can one live in a world as wide as ours and not be ecstatic and miserable all the time? Yours, ecstatically with you and miserably without. Leslie. Eleventh of March, nineteen forty-six. Dearest Esther, Father has returned from the Indies, and he brought back the most gorgeous sari. He told me it's a graceful, stylish item the ladies in India wear. It's sheer fabric with a glorious pattern embroidered in gold. I shall absolutely have to show you when next I see you. Do come by soon. Father will be returning to Stewartby within the week, and Mother is constantly in town, gossiping with whomever will listen. I've missed you, dear Esther. I don't know how long I shall last with Mother pestering me to see this Mr. Purvis. She calls him over constantly, and he talks the most mundane nonsense. I should think even Father Bortolozzo would doze off listening to him. On the subject of the Father, what did you think to his sermon this week? Was it not the most exciting, ridiculous stuff you ever heard? Now the war is done, he says, women must return to the role God intended for them. Homemakers. How laughable. It was almost too much when I saw your smirk from the other pew not to erupt into giggles. Must you have sat so close? Mother doesn't know of our acquaintances. I almost made a fool of myself on account of the dress you wore. 
could barely stop myself from running to you and embracing you. The cotton looked so soft, I wished to be waddled in it with you beside me, sweet, soft Esther. Mother is back from town. She shall want help unloading the vegetables and unloading the gossip she's heard. Oh, Esther, why must women gossip so? Is it not enough that we are hated by society? Need we so vehemently hate one another as well? In all my days, I shall never hate a woman, for I love women as deeply and passionately as men do. No, more so. Visit soon, awaiting your rescue from Mother and Mr. Purvis, Beatrice. Eighteenth of March, nineteen sixty-six. Charles, are you alone? What follows may be so earth-shattering that you may do better to take a solitary seat somewhere. Are you seated? See, my darling, see, I have read the first of Mother's letters. Why did I not read the lot? I am sure you would immediately ask if I were beside you. You shall see. When you hear what I read, why I could not, why I was too shocked to continue. Mother had a friend during and after the war, a, a close friend named Esther. They visited one another, embraced one another. Mother writes of this Esther sitting close to her in church and being so excited by it, I swear they could have been us. Think of it, see. Twenty years ago, my mother was sat in a church in town, listening to some Italian father drone on about something or other, and all that was in her head was this Esther and her cotton dress. And just last Sunday, I sat behind you while Reverend Morgan droned on, and I could think of nothing but you. It's almost as though we were related. Ridiculous, I know. Regarding your letter, I received it this morning and devoured it instantly. Your words lift my soul, see. I needed your encouragement after the week I appear to be having. Mother won't hear of me wanting to go into the capital, complaining it's full of miscreants and undesirables wherever one goes. Oh, but see, I must see Camden. Please, let us go there together. Rescue me from this house, this village, this county. You promised, in writing, no less, to take me out when next you visit. So I implore you. Visit soon and bring me out of Bedfordshire and into the promised land with you beside me, unafraid, longing, and public. See, I know these may only be pipe dreams that we may be together, but if we may not dream of being out without reproach, then surely we must weep. If you weep, dear sea, I weep with you. Leslie. Seventeenth of March, nineteen forty-six. My darling Esther, save me, I beg you, from the hell I have endured today. You remembered I told you of Mr. Purvis and his incessant chatter. Well, Mother decided it was time for us to sit together now that Father is returned and working, and discuss the future. 
After church this morning, Father approached Mr. Purvis and asked him if he would not come back with us for lunch. He said he would be delighted, and then continued to say such in thousands of words on the walk back to our house. He didn't hush the entire time, never once relenting on how charmed he was to have been asked and what an honour it was to spend the afternoon with such a glowing young lady, referring to me. Esther, if you had called me this, I should have blushed with affection, warmed my heart and treasured the sounds escaping from your lips for weeks to come. But from such a blabbering man as Mr. Purvis, it means nothing. It is merely a few words of the many he must release each day, each following sentence diminishing the worth of the previous. Let me take you moment by agonizing moment through the fated encounter. As soon as he had crossed the threshold, he insisted in embracing me so pathetically and gently, suggesting that he did fear to break you in two such that I had to take several deep breaths to stop my anger showing as a deep red flush across my face. Why must he suggest that I am fragile? Do I look sickly, Esther? Perhaps I do, for I have not had your light around me to grow and flourish. I need you as a tree needs the sun. Mother blushed and held her hand to her heart in admiration. But how could she see this act as anything but insulting? Does she allow father to patronize her so? I should never have allowed father to approach this purpose fellow. The living room feels sullied since he left, and I daren't enter it until I can be sure that all the air he touched has been replaced through the windows I've thrown open. Next, mother flapped back and forth like some bat trapped in the house, bringing tea and baked goods and goodness knows what else in from the kitchen. Mr. Purvis and Father, meanwhile, discussed the intricacies of the British red brick. Or, rather, Mr. Purvis said, I understand you're at the Stewartby Works, Mr. Rossi, and then proceeded to babble on about the particularities of the soil in East Anglia and its importance for something or other. If truth were told, Esther dear, I didn't understand, and if I had, I doubt I could have cared enough to retain his monologue. Once Mother had forced a delicate china teacup into Mr. Purvis's hands, he compared me to the cup. Am I white as bone china, Esther? Do not you love me for my olive tone? I know you do, for you have told me how the white of bed linen pales against my skin. Is the man both foolish and blind? He elaborated, of course, saying how I was fragile as china. Again with fragility? What is it with men and the fragility of the so-called gentler sex? I swear to you, my dove, that I have read so many novels written by men in which women are so paper-thin one feels as though they could be knocked down by the turning of the page. This propaganda against us appears to have infected men such that they would believe us to be boneless as well as brainless. When tea was served, Mr. Purvis sat talking of the wonderful decor and how the painting above the mantel really ties the room together. Well, when Father mentioned how I had painted it and that it was of the view from the family home in Vieste, he was enthused, inflating like some hideous balloon man. 
Now, Esther, I'm sure you find the image amusing now, safe in your home, but imagine my fright and horror as the man grew a ready purple and began huffing and raving about my incomparable talents as an artiste, pronouncing it artiste and forcing me to cringe visibly. He, however, took this for modesty and did not relent until my father managed to get a word in to ask that he not embarrass his daughter any more and that... Yes, of course she is a wonder, but you may be preaching to the choir, Mr. Purvis. This is how I learned one more hideous fact about him. His Christian name. He replied, Please, Mr. Rossi, Mr. Purvis is my father. Call me Edmund. Edmund? My darling Esther, you've no idea the perfection of it. Imagine, if you will, the image of a man named Edmund what he would look like, how he would dress, hold himself, address others. You are picturing the quintessential Edmund, I am sure. This Edmund Purvis is that very Edmund. Absurdly, pompously dreadful. <laughs> well, next came the most terrible events, the dreaded conversation with this Edmund over my future here in Bedford. "'We've been thinking about Beatrice and what will become of her in England,' began Father. "'I turned to Mother for comfort and an escape from this hell, "'but she'd vanished into the kitchen to prepare lunch, "'and I was, I was left alone with the two men with no point of egress. "'I am sure she will be well looked after,' Mr. Purvis said with a knowing look. "'The way he paused, the way he looked at me, suggesting so much more behind the words he said. Yes, yes, I'm sure, said Father, but the... Here he searched for the word, clearly intimidated by Mr. Purvis. How infuriating! That my father should feel inferior to this Edmund and his accent lifted straight from the newsroom of the BBC is absurd. Simply because Edmund is an architect and Father makes bricks means nothing. Would Edmund have a job to do if there were not bricks with which to build his designs? The particulars, Father continued. I see, Edmund said, and for the first time since he had left the church that morning he appeared baffled, bemused, and remained silent. I relished that moment of quiet, dear Esther, for it reminded me of the bliss of silence that we supply one another. In your presence, there is no need for idle chatter. Is it not enough that two who love one another may sit in silence and gaze upon the other's face and love them quietly? Mr. Purvis, it seems, does not think so. It is not love if it is not expressed, he must think. At last, unfortunately, he found his tongue again. Perhaps this matter ought better to be discussed in private, Mr. Rossi. Mother was evidently listening in from the kitchen, for at that exact instance she rushed in and grasped me rather firmly by the arm. Beatrice, dear, I need some help preparing lunch in here. And before I could answer, I was out of the room and chopping tomatoes. <laughs> at least this was a brief respite from Edmund and his malicious smirking. Perhaps other ladies would find this horrid lip term and squinting eye pleasant and fall for his charms, but I do not. I see nothing attractive about the man. His smile is not a dot on yours, Esther. 
for he has not the smoothness of complexion nor the kindness of eye that you have when you smile at me. Oh, Esther, visit soon. Save me from this place, from this man. Nothing much happened. Well, I say that, but of course, much came from Mr. Purvis's mouth, but none of it warrants a permanent record within this letter. Needless to say, he spoke at great length of the king, of the war and his place in it, of the business of architecture, of the need for sensible men like himself, and the need for these sensible men to have sensible wives. Goodness, Esther, it was such a bore. Write me of your Sunday, and I hope that it was an absolutely average one, so that I may live vicariously through your letter a more normal and not at all disturbing weekend. But one day, I hope that we may spend a Sunday together, and let it be as dull as we please. Until that time, I remain duly dull beside you, Beatrice. First of March, 1966. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Charles. I have not got the sounds of that place out of my head, buzzing and thumping through my skull, unstoppable, causing an unquenchable thirst. I must consume rhythm and blues, funk and soul, seek it out in every moment and devour it. See... You have awakened something in me, and for that I must thank you infinitely. London is a wonder. It is second only to you in that which I adore. I feel like a new lover, courting Camden and investing my everything into it. Do you recall when I was the same with you? You changed me. And now you have brought this city into our lives, and we have become an unholy trinity. I have only felt this way twice in my life before, and you have been the focus of each time. The first time I spoke with you, the King's Arms, you wrapped me in your speech. So eloquent, fluent, and exciting, I was filled with a painful ecstasy, and I had to see more and more of you. That same thirst filled me then as it does now. This break was everything I needed, from Mother, more on that to follow, and Bedfordshire and its flat boredom. Why must East Anglia be so flat and uninteresting? The paintings on the walls of Mother's hometown look so mountainous and dramatic. Why would Nono ever have chosen to leave? But London. It has its own mountains, made by the honest labour of people like Nono, who, I'm sure, made some of the bricks we passed. I like to think that Nono crafted the bricks in Hawley Mews, where we waddled in each other's arms. Perhaps his hands touched the bricks my hands touched when you thrust me against the wall and held me there, pinned as Christ was to the cross as your lips and teeth caressed my neck and chest. That my family is linked to me through my sinful actions excites me. I read a second letter from Mother, the next chronologically in the pile. 
I do wonder how she has them, and why this friend of hers, this Esther, doesn't. As much as I want to tell you of the excitement this letter contains, I can barely stop my fingers from typing more about Camden. Indulge me, see. I know you were there, but I simply have to tell you my favourite things, having had the time to think more on it. First, the buildings. I call them mountains, and truly they are monstrous, glorious things to be feared. You told me it was a relatively new style called brutalism, which sounds just perfect, for they are brutal, these buildings. They jut out of the ground, rough, stony-faced edifices that seem to challenge you to try and conquer them, or climb them, or destroy them. How I long to walk the streets of a city filled with such towers and get lost in a concrete maze. But no, I'm stuck in this rural hell with its history, always clinging to the past, keeping hideously over-elaborate churches and courtrooms and Tudor townhouses. They're all absurd and completely inappropriate for modern living. As a boy, Dad showed me his drawings, his predictions of living in the future, how Britain would look in 1980. It was all concrete, steel, and glass. Stylish, elegant, efficient. I loved the idea of it then, but seeing it coming together with you, I realised that a future, our future, can be our own. A future where we may live together in an apartment high up in the city. You will write poems and perform them, and I will laugh and love you with all my heart. That leads me to my other love in Camden. That pub you took me to, the Black Cap. How was I to know that there was a space for us to be safely and securely appreciated and not at all out of place? It was a wonder to be there drinking and chatting to men and women who see life in the same way that we do. And the poetry, the singing, the entertainment was unlike anything I've seen before, sweet Charles. Your work was wonderful, of course. And did I sense in your performance, within the words you'd written, some influence from me? You said a line. I forget the exact quotation, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not quite the wordsmith you are, of disobeying God while the preacher lectures on disobedience. That sounds oddly familiar. I'm rubbing off on you, see, and perhaps not for the best. You always seemed so pure. When I first heard you talk, I could have sworn you'd never dream of drifting from God's light. Yet under the lights of that pub, we were further from salvation than ever. Further from salvation, but happier than I have been my entire life. I felt, my dove, that I was myself there. That I was finally Leslie Purvis. Perhaps I'm going mad, but spending the evening in the black cap made me realise that the Leslie until that night had been a fiction, an incomplete picture that was tossed aside and a new man emerged, fully formed, from the shadows of that place. Thank you, C. 
this new Leslie thanks you for releasing him unto the world, for birthing him with your love. See, Mother just arrived home and has spoken to me for the first time in what feels like weeks. I thought perhaps she knew that I was reading the letters and had come to berate me, but no, dear Charles, it is worse than that. She saw the lovely camel-skin coat you'd bought me and checked the label. When she saw it had come from London, she went hysterical and yelled and yelled and forced me to confess that I had visited with you. She doesn't know the details, but it would be best if I don't write for a while. Though it will kill me to see you in church and in the street and not be able to talk to you. Please forgive me. See, I do this to save us, and wish that it didn't have to be so sudden. Forever loving you, even in silence, Leslie. Other Pew was produced by Alex Horn, written by Alex Horn, voices by Alex Horn, and music by Alex Horn. Currently, this is a pilot of the first part of a series. If you would like me to continue to produce this series, let me know. Tweet me at AlexDRHorn. And thank you for listening.